This is the day the Lord hath made, so let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's this day, every day, not just the so-called good days or bad days, every day, this day, the Lord hath made, so let us be glad and rejoice in it. My name is Hal Brady, and I'm so delighted you've joined me for this evening's worship service. I hope and pray that this message and music will be a blessing to your life. Would you hear now, please, the reading of God's Word? It comes from the book of Acts, chapter 2, beginning at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. All came upon everyone because many wonderful signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. 
they would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Join me, please, for a word of prayer. O God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, which are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The question before us today is, who defines the church? And it's a proper question because the church was born after Pentecost, but also after the resurrection. It's a proper question because of the many numerous activities of the church. And these activities in the church always need to be redefined and they need renewal. So who defines the church? Who really does define the church? Do non-believers define the church? Does the media define the church? Do critics define the church? Do people who are inactive define the church? The late great preacher and noted theologian, Dr. Helmut Tillichie, was correct when he said, the church cannot permit its authority to be defined by people who have no idea of its mission. So who defines the church? The overwhelming testimony of the New Testament is that God defines the church. God says what the church is and what the church ought to be. Now this brings us to our text. The resurrection and Pentecost have already occurred. Peter has preached the first Christian sermon ever preached, and everybody's excited and thrilled about it. The church has come into being. And then it is that the writer of Luke sketches out a picture of what this messianic community ought to look like. Remember, this is a sketch, but it's God's sketch. And so consequently, it's a sketch we need to pay attention to. God tells us what the church is and what the church ought to be. So tonight, I want us to focus on what I'm calling essentials to our life together. First of all, the church is a dinner invitation that is all-inclusive. Not long ago, my wife and I received a special dinner invitation to what they called an award and recognition banquet. It had to do with a friend of mine who had made some marvelous contributions to that institution, and we were invited to come to the dinner. We were so proud of him and what he had done for that institution, but also that invitation reminded me of the church. That invitation is exactly what the church is. The church is a dinner invitation that is all-inclusive, all-inclusive. Luke says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. As we focus on the church, we should always begin with the Lord's Supper. So how do we define the sacrament of the Lord's Supper? First of all, it is a memorial meal, a memorial meal. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you declare the Lord's death. As we think of this, as we commune with the elements, we take of the bread and the wine, we need to focus on that once and for all act of redemption brought about through Jesus Christ for our sins. And so what we do is we remember Christ died. Some of us will remember that Jesus had three temptations in the wilderness. But there's also a legend that he had a fourth temptation. This fourth temptation occurred while he was hanging on the cross. 
as he was suffering the agony and despair of being up on the cross, Satan whispered into his ear, they aren't worth it, Lord, they aren't worth it. But we're told that it was at this moment that Jesus lifted up his eyes and prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Satan fled because he knew he had no power against this kind of sacrificial love. And then, secondly, a celebration of Christ's resurrected presence. As we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes, what does that suggest? It suggests that he is alive. When asked what was the sacrament, John Wesley said it is more than simply one dimension. It is more than the dimension of Christ's death. It has to do with Christ being alive. Christ being alive. And John Wesley tells us that it was Jesus' choice to come and be with us whenever the Lord's Supper is observed. But he comes not in the bread or the juice. He comes in the Holy Spirit. So he comes to us alive and present in our celebration of that sacrament. And then thirdly, an anticipation of the future. We state in our ritual, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. What we're stating is that there'll be a time in the future when Christ will come to judge the world. Someone said, whenever you observe Holy Communion, you should be doing three things. First, you should be looking back in the past and being mindful of the great sacrifice Christ made as a ransom for our sins. Secondly, we worship the living God in our worship. And third, we look forward to the consummation of God's purposes, to the second coming of Christ into the world. So communion is simply a foretaste. It's a foretaste of what is going to happen. It's a foretaste for us of what will happen at death. And it's a foretaste for us that we are the only ones who are connected to that great cloud of witnesses that has preceded us to the Father's house. And then fourthly, an offering, an offering of our lives. These words were found on the Sunday school room of a senior class. I asked Jesus how much he loved me, and he stretched out his arms and died. He stretched out his arms and died. Hear me now. The gift of God in Christ is not something, first of all, to be imitated. It is, first of all, to be received, thankfully and joyfully and in a marvelous way. So when we come to the altar for communion, we're not only coming to receive something, we're coming to offer something. We're coming to offer our lives. I think it was Paul said to Romans, I appeal to you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. A lady walked into a church, and in the process of coming into the church, she looked tired and worn out. The preacher said to her, you look like you're holding the troubles of the world on your back. She said, no, not all the problems. I only have one problem. I'm not committed to anything. As I said, when we come to the altar to receive, we also come to offer. We come to offer our lives in offering for what God has done for us in his offering. Now, with something of this, of Holy Communion, in our minds, we're ready to hear again the invitation. Ye that do truly and earnestly repent of your sins and are in love and charity with your neighbors and intend to lead a new life, draw near with faith and take this sacrament to your comfort. And we read in Acts, God shows no partiality. We read in Mark's gospel, Jesus said, I didn't come for the righteous, I came for the unrighteous. And we read in Galatians, it is not Jew or Gentile, female or male, all are one in Christ 
Jesus. All are one in Christ Jesus. And so the church is a dinner invitation that breaks down all barriers. And then secondly, the church is a community of growth. Luke says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. A man called a church one day by mistake. When he got to church, the lady who was the church receptionist answered it. She had been distracted. She answered in a normal way, but not the way she usually does. She simply says, hello. The man said, I want one pound of barbecue. He said, I want two pints of slaw. I want a dozen hush puppies. She said, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're, you're in the wrong place. We're not a food service agency. He stopped and said, well, what do you sell? What is your business? Well, that's a fair question for the church. What is the church's business? The church's business is redemption. The church is in the redemption business. That's always the case. The early church was now a reality. It was a vigorous band of men and women who were drawn together and stayed together because they believed in the risen Christ. They were centered in the apostles' teaching. They were centered in the apostles' teaching. And if you want to know what the apostles' teaching really was, then look in Acts 1 and find out the qualifications of the person they chose to take Judas Iscariot's place. The qualification was that he had to know about Jesus, the facts about Jesus from the beginning. So the apostles' teaching, we can simply say, is the words and work of Jesus Christ as it's interpreted in the Gospels and comes down to us today. Now, remember that those people did not have any Christian writings written down, but they did receive word from the Jews, the Scripture. So they read the Jewish Scripture, but they interpreted the Jewish Scripture like this. They said all of these prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. The apostles' teaching. They were connected to the apostles' teaching. Now, one of my fears today concerning the modern church is that we're not as connected to the apostles' teaching as the early church. Many people simply say, well, any kind of devotion or any kind of fellowship is fine. Consequently, many people in the church miss out on the great things about the church, the meaning of the church, the meaning of the faith, the joy of the faith, because simply the apostle's teaching is not the center of their lesson. I remember a writer of Mark's gospel was asked, what is the purpose of everything? He said to be with Christ and to be apostled by Christ. What he was saying was, it's a personal relationship with Christ and it's also to spread his mission around the world. And if the church is not centered in the apostles' teaching, what possible opportunity will it have? It needs to be centered in the apostles' teaching. Donald Miller was a pastor, and he was also at one time the dean of a seminary. He received a call one weekend, and when he answered, this is what the woman said, what do I believe, Dr. Miller? He wasn't sure he heard that correctly, so he said, what? She said, what do I believe? And then she went on to say, I've just come from a party. And people were talking about what they believed. There was a Jewish person there. She talked about what she believed as a Jew. Then there were some Roman Catholics there. They talked about what the Catholics believed. Then there were some Christian scientists there. They talked about what the Christian scientists believed. I was the only Protestant there. I didn't know what to say. What do we believe? Donald Miller said, evidently that woman joined the church on the confusion of faith and not the confession of faith. There are many, many like that in the church. The church is a community of growth, a community of growth. 
And then, as we move along, the church is a community that does not neglect its devotional life. We are told that these early followers of Jesus spent time in the temple. They were developing their prayer and devotional life. They grew in devoutness. I remember when I was a first-year student at the Candler School of Theology in Atlanta. I remember that I had an 8 o'clock class that quarter. It was on the introduction to the Old Testament. And I also remember I was rooming with a medical student during that time. And after he studied every night, he wanted to discuss religion. So we would stay up every night until about 3 a.m. talking about religion. Well, you know what happened when I got to that class the next morning. I'd be dead. I'd be sleepy and exhausted. And besides that, my desk was on the first row. And the professor quite often would lecture sitting on my desk to the everybody else. Well, I'd be down there struggling to stay awake. Well, the professor Ned never said anything to me until the last day of class. As I walked out of his class, he walked over to me and he put his arm on my shoulder, he looked me straight into the eyes, and he said, Young brother, there's something about you that bothers me. I said, What's that, doctor? He said, You can't seem to stay awake in my class. Well, to make a long story short, I did well in that course. But then I got to thinking about this in preparation for this sermon. Sometimes Christian theology or discipline or how the faith began can get a little uninteresting and sometimes we can border on sleepiness, literally or otherwise. But what is it that keeps us awake? What is it that keeps us excited? What is it that keeps us focused on our faith? I'll tell you what it is. It is our attentiveness to prayer. Our attentiveness to prayer. Prayer is the power line that keeps us focused on the apostles' teaching. The late Earl Hunt, who was a bishop in the United Methodist Church, said when he was in his first year in seminary, he said he came to the point one weekend when he wanted to leave. He said he was struggling to keep his faith. As a matter of fact, he had lost it. He realized that Moses hadn't written all the Pentateuch. There were a family of Isaiah's. And he said he just wanted to leave. But the problem was he didn't have any money and he didn't have a ticket to go anywhere and he didn't know where he would go if he could have. So he stayed. The next morning he went to see the dean, Dean Henry Trimble. He went and told him his situation and the dean listened attentively. And finally the dean said to him, Earl, how's your prayer life? That's the question for all of us. How's your prayer life? Because it's on that field of commitment and concerning our prayer, whether we keep faithful to the apostles' teaching or not, prayer will enable us to stay faithful to the apostles' teaching. And that's probably the only thing that will. And then there's something else here that we need to review as we deal with this particular sermon. We also need to keep in mind something else that has to do with fellowship fellowship. We're told that those early apostles participated in fellowship. There were three ministers going down this path, and they ran into a fairy godmother. One was a Roman Catholic minister, one was a Protestant minister, and one was a Jewish rabbi. The fairy godmother said, I'm going to give each one of you one wish, one wish. And so the Roman Catholic minister said, I wish that all the Protestants would disappear from the earth. The Protestant minister said, I wish all the Roman Catholics would disappear from the earth. I said it was, the, the fairy godmother said to the Jewish rabbi, and what do you wish? He said, oh, don't bother about me, just take care of my friends. 
that's not exactly the kind of fellowship I'm talking about. I'm talking about the kind of fellowship that these apostles had. They kept the fellowship. This was something different. It was uncommon, I call it. Remember, the primitive church had a special fellowship that went beyond simply this brotherly and sisterly feeling that sometimes we have in this culture. Some of the scholars believe that the outstanding point of Pentecost was when these people who were so diverse were made one. They were unified in Christ. That was the point of Pentecost for many of them. But we need to realize that this fellowship was instituted of God. It was not a human fellowship. The reason we know that is because of some of the signs and wonders that were in the fellowship. Listen, all who believed were together. All who believed were together had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. That was not just a human fellowship. This was a fellowship instituted of God. Now, what that says is that the ministry and the church, the task of the church for any and all time, is that there is no dork in the church. There is no dork in the church. There's nobody in the church that doesn't make the cut. There's no thems and us in the church. We are all one in Christ Jesus. I think the best example I have ever seen of this kind of fellowship is in the intensive care unit of a hospital. Some years ago, I was working on my doctorate at Emory University, and I had to be the chaplain for the intensive care unit of Eggleston Hospital. I was over there every day dealing with the needs of parents and children. There was one big, large waiting room. Everybody knew of what everything was happening to everybody else. This was an uncommon fellowship. There were no color distinctions. There were no nationality distinctions. There were no political distinctions. There was no class distinctions. Everybody cared for everybody else. Everybody loved everybody else. Everybody was interested in everybody else. Everybody was doing what they could to help everybody else. This was the kind of fellowship that the early church had, the kind of fellowship of God. Now, I think, as I have thought about life and its conclusion, life is intended to be that way. Fellowship in the church is intended to be that way. Personally, I like the way Will Campbell expressed it in one of his songs. This is what he said. For we was born, we was all kin. When we dead, we'll be kinfolks again. But what the church says is, we're kinfolks right now. We're kinfolks right now. So who defines the church? God defines the church in terms of the breaking of bread, in terms of growth, in terms of prayers, in terms of fellowship. Let us pray. Lord, we're so grateful for this uncanny, divine illustration of the church. Help us, O oh God, to get above our own human understandings of the church, to arrive at a divine understanding that consists of these ingredients that I have tried to mention. We do thank you for the church. Forgive us of our sins. Guide the church in all of its ministries. And may everything we do lift up the one we know as life, even Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you so very much for joining us in this worship service. I trust that it's been a blessing to you and that you will share this time with others. God bless. Good night.
Joy shall 